All right. Welcome in to another episode of Debate Night. We are back. Um, I am back in. I am back in real time. This is an episode that isn't taking place um, in the past, I guess, to those watching. Uh, so that'll be nice. We're going to go over everything that went down at DDO this past weekend, talk about some of the um, exciting things that popped up. Uh, today, we have just three cast members. One had to uh, jump out last second. So we have three today. Uh, we have Brody coming to us from Iowa. Yeah, another uh, another huge city, Indiola. I don't even know <laughs> if I said that right. Indiola. Just a massive hub. Um, we also have Steven joining us as well. Uh, early again, but here I am, 6 a.m. West Coast time, baby. Let's get it. Back in West Coast time where I left him. And uh, and Matthew is joining us today as well. How's it going, guys? Pleasure to be uh, back. Um, yeah, so we're going to hop right into it today. Uh, we're going to start uh, with a little bit of FPO from DDO, um, starting with Holland Handley. So this is an interesting topic. I, I saw some debate about this on Twitter. Not we and we get these topics a lot, but this one was pretty in your face and we're talking about spit outs uh hall and hanley had some vicious spit outs during that final round with the worst one coming on hole 14 on a birdie look obviously ultimately she lost the event uh well she lost into a playoff um so a lot of people do that math in their head some people don't like that argument because they say well there's a lot of golf to play after um, but some people can say well listen that cost her the tournament ultimately if that goes in um, so it, there's two sides of the fence there. So the question is, is that an a, a, a invalid argument when there's golf to play after? Or are those spit out something that we need to be like talking about more like, hey, these just can't happen. They're unacceptable. What's the what's the thought here? Brody, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I think ideally from a player's standpoint, you know, you want to have a basket that is as consistent as possible. That's that's I think what everyone's looking for is if you, you know. If you putt and the disc hits a certain way and it catches uh, 99.9% .9 of the time, um, we would probably would like that to be more like 100%. When it comes to baskets, though, when I, I guess what ends up happening is I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how some people think, you know, they have a spit out when in fact it was just high left or it was too much hyzer on the right hand side and it gets pushed out. Um, the ones that are tough are the ones that are like directly center and they just kind of go in and then go out, you know? Yeah. Um, but I would say like any, any sort of shot like that, obviously it's easy for people to look at it and be like, Oh, that's how they lost. But you know, it's a three round tournament. There's tons and tons of shots. That I'm sure Holland would have loved to have back. I think it's just always going to be if something down the stretch like that happens, people are always going to look at that as, oh, that is the reason. Um, but yeah, the baskets, we, we got to find a solution that, uh, you know, just doesn't make good putts miss, I guess. Or I guess yeah. great putts, I guess yeah. would be a better. Good putts, I'm okay with it being 50-50. But great putts need to probably make the basket every time. Yeah, f fair enough. Because that putt on 14, I mean, tough to find issue with it. Steven, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, so before I get into the spit outs, uh, hole 16 is what caused Holland to lose. Okay. It wasn't her spit outs. It was hole 16. She missed the island the first go around. She ended up with a bogey. They finally get to a playoff. What'd she do? She throws the exact same shot with the expectation of a different result, you can't do that blasted into the back wall. You have that power. Like there's, there's no reason for you not to at least cross land up there at some point. And, you know, if you bounce off the cage or whatever, so be it fine, but hole 16 caused her to lose. Now the spit outs, in my opinion, um, even hole 14, if you look at it, she's putting downhill it's a little bit higher in the chain, so you leave room for it to come back out. It was on Heiser coming downhill a little bit high. There's room for it to spit out. It, it was close to being a perfect putt, but it wasn't a perfect putt. If it was a perfect putt, it'd be in the bottom of the basket. Now, and I think the narrative with spit outs in, in, in a hole is, in my opinion, a little bit ridiculous. I understand it from a player's point of view, and they will always have an argument 
until the pro tour has one basket for every single tournament that they use. And at that point, once you have that one single basket and you start having spit outs like real bad, then you can have a real discussion at that point. But all the players will have the same basket to practice on, to play on, and we'll know what to expect heading in. And so I think the conversation of spit outs will die at that point. Yeah, certainly a step in the right direction. Matthew, what do you think? Does step out, spit outs cost for the event? I'm going to say kind of. Um, so my big de- note for the whole day is going to be momentum. You're going to hear me talk about it in a lot of these other instances. And that exists here. When I was watching, she seemed pretty good at shaking that off. Um, I mean, 14 was tough. I'll, I'll, I think everyone can admit that. But momentum is that important part. She mentioned in herself in an interview um, that she felt like she just wasn't throwing the disc well. And her caddy told her, she said, he said, hey, you were like shorting this. I don't know why. And this was for a lot of holes. So like this wasn't just, okay, if she missed those two. She was like, uh, I think it was 14, 15, 16, obviously. Uh, I've watched Holland throw like a million times. I think Holland's the best, but I can agree with Steven here. 16, a lot of the time was just like, I feel like you could have thrown it so much farther and just accepted the par. Like the one she watched, I think it was Kristen throw in the water and then someone else get really close. And then she turned around and still decided to run for that play. And it's like, well, that's your game. If you're confident in your game, go for it. But from what was it's sounding like you weren't confident in your game so much so that your caddy had to have a a serious discussion with you about how you're not throwing the disc well. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, certainly it was interesting to see her line up that shot after it not working the first time. And there wasn't really any wind out there on that Island. That's where I was really confused. Heiser just seemed so simple. Uh, There might've been a little right to left, but not a ton. Uh, My one follow-up question to you, Steven, with the baskets is if the sweet spot on a basket is so precise because I mean, like if the putt on 14 is a little high, and we talk about that a lot. Well, we find a lot of excuses for putts that spit out, right? So we talk sure. about like it was a little right, it was a little high. If the sweet spot is so small for a putt that goes in 100% of the time, and everywhere else in the chains is a percentage play, do baskets just need to be really tiny? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to it. I, I think that, you know, if you're talking about making the game more difficult, if you're talking about making putting harder then you know, going to the training basket, that's the, you know, you know, yeah. it, it, what do you want ultimately? And I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to seeing it. I think Brody might have a different opinion than that, you know, being a player. But uh, I think if the pro tour can just get a singular basket for the entire tour, and this is a point that most podcasts, most news outlets have talked about. Yeah. I think that that's the goal. Get yeah. to a point where it's a singular basket yeah. and then you, it, you can't have any more complaints. Yeah. It can't, it can't be long. I, Cause you're right. I mean, it would, everybody would at least know a lot more about how one basket interacts with their putters and, and be able to learn off of that. Um, that would certainly help. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very tough one for Holland Hanley, but easy to argue that there were plenty of other mistakes. It's a long tournament. It's just tough when they happen down the stretch. Certainly. Yeah. Um, each, each of our uh, analysts with two points headed into our next subject um, talking about Haley King. So Haley King, taking down the win shown some more consistent play this season Haley King for it seems like the last three years has been treated as a how good could she be type of player like oh man if Haley King can just string it together hit her ceiling she's gonna be the best ever because you see the athleticism in her throwing you see these flashes of greatness um so my question is is she still that kind of player or has she finally settled into a consistent norm this season and hit a ceiling that we should expect going forward is this the Haley King that we're just gonna see from now on Steven what do you think uh no i i think that she is still the how good could she be player at this point in time in my opinion i think she before she gets to a plateau we're going to need to see her kind of reach that peak on a consistent basis i want to see her on the podium for more than a couple tournaments in a row i want to see her in a place where she's winning two three four pro tour or major events throughout a season because she has the tools that are needed in order to accomplish that she has every single physical tool and every throw that you could want the problem with her is is going to continue to be her mental lapses we saw it with that upshot that forehand upshot that she threw right into the into the ob you know it, it like fell out of her hand and you can't have that coming down the stretch in any kind of tournament and so you know 
remove those unforced errors. And Haley King has the physical tools to be Kristen level good. And I think that's not an over-exaggeration. She has that skill set. And so have we seen her reach the ceiling yet? No. I, I think that if she kind of progresses through that mental side of things, we're going to see a player that could be like the Kristen that we're talking about today's game. Yeah. All right. So S- Steven's still singing the same tune of, of years past, <laughs> waiting, waiting for the ceiling. What do you think, Matthew? Is, is that still the case? Yeah, it it absolutely is. I will say this for every single player who is relatively young on tour, and Haley King is pretty young. We don't know what that is. When I was looking, I was trying to understand, like, you know, everyone's singing this, you know, Haley, to- Haley King could be amazing, and then looking at her performances, like, why, why is that? And the only thing that I saw was, like, from tournament to tournament, what she, like, messes up on, we could say, changes. Uh, and I think that's the the kind of the mental game Stephen was talking about. Um, but I think it's also consistency. You know, she is a young player. She is definitely. I w- if I was in her shoes, I'd be pretty nervous as far as this goes. She's not settled into that like consistent routine. But we see glimpses of like really good play, like this weekend. And like even if you look at other tournaments where she didn't play well, parts of her game were so good. It just wasn't that whole thing. So I think as she settles in, I think as the mental no, like mental stuff kind of works its way down, and as she gets more consistent with stuff like that, uh, she talked about she was working with Bradley Williams a little bit on she felt like she couldn't throw flat, like tiny little things that are coming up and continuing to come up that kind of brought, drop her play down just a little bit. Yeah, I, I, and you're right. Age is certainly still on her side. There's a lot of time to to form a golf career. Just ask Kristen Sitar. I mean, she <laughs> took her quite a while, but then now here she is. Brody, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think I agree with the how good could she be argument of people still having questions about that because when you do watch her play, you know, if you're not looking at her scores and you're just see- simply seeing how she throws a forehand and how she throws a backhand, just the eye test and how she puts, she's very impressive in comparison to some of the FPO players that are finishing high up on the leaderboard. Um, she's actually had a decent season, I would say, this year. I just kind of looked. She's kind of been sneaky, like, up there, fifth at Waco, sixth at... Vegas, a third at Champions Cup, a second at Jonesboro, and six at OTB, and now taking down the win at DDO. Um, you know, obviously making top tens isn't as impressive uh, just with the field size uh, for some of these events, but she's not having like some, you know, she did get 23rd and 11th, both at Music City and the Open at Austin, but. Um, She's, I think she's in the next tier down. So I don't think she's up where Kristen Tatar is. And then I would say probably under Kristen Tatar, I'm going to probably leave out a few names, but I would probably put like Paige real close to the Kristen. We haven't really seen Kristen and Paige go head to head in recent memory. Um, I, I think we're also waiting for that to go down when they're both clicking and seeing who can take it on top. But I think she is right there and she's like just a little bit higher than like a Holland Hanley and Ellen Hansen in the sense of that she does get, she does know how to win. She has one coming down the stretch and we've seen Ella and Holland multiple times now put themselves in contention and for whatever reason, just not able to actually win. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think all of us are rooting for more, more consistent play from Haley to be towards the top of the the leaderboard pushing for for wins and not having you know some of these tournaments where it's just like wait where where is she why is she not you know somewhat close to the top yeah yeah i, I mean it's definitely more consistency like you mentioned with those pretty good finishes this year we know that she knows how to win um I, you know, it's just one of those players where it's every year like, oh, if she can just put, pull it together, fix this or that at some point, when does that just become, that is who the player is. I, and it, you know, when, like you mentioned, Matthew, when age is on their side, it's not really fair to draw that conclusion when they could have 10 years left in their career. So it is definitely difficult, but I think she's found a lot more success now. And I certainly see her, um, 
getting more wins this season, certainly. So we're going to move on to the MPO side. Right now, Brody and Steven each have four points. Matthew at three. Um, Parker Welk, what a story. So, you know, we're watching we're watching this, this guy who just seems unbeatable out there on the final day, taking down the best player in the world. Um, you know, and slowly the information, if you hadn't known about Parker Welk, which a lot of people didn't, I'm sure, the information slowly starts coming from the booth where they're like, yeah, you know, he's never really done much on tour. And, oh, he's only rated 10-10, which I th- was like a shock to me. Uh, and then he's like in his mid-20s, so it's not like he's just some teenager either. Uh, so so my question is, you know, being rated just 10-10, you know, taking down a huge pro tour event and, bo- and besting the number one player in the world, is that the best underdog story the pro tour has ever seen? What do you think, Matthew? Heck yes, it is. I mean, what else can you ask for? This is like the perfect setup. Everyone online is just looking this kid up after the fact. Just like, hey, where has this guy been? What is he doing? We're seeing this style of play. And it kind of, looking at other finishes he's had, it kind of helps that story. 43rd at Vegas, 41 at Austin, 52 at Texas State, 98th at Music City. Like, he was out there, but the best underdog story ever doesn't matter that he was in 98th a while ago. He was in first yesterday. You know, that is so cool to talk about. And it just makes so much conversation, both for people talking about the tournament and after the fact. And there's just so much stuff that it's a nice story. You can wrap up in a bow and just talk about and present to really anyone. And whether they're inside a disc golf or out, and they still have an awesome time like hearing about that. I thought it was so, I, I thought it was so cool. I was just watching everything he was doing and he had some hilarious interviews as well after the fact. So I think it made it kind of a perfect underdog story there. Yeah, definitely like pretty endearing personality as well. Seemed like a really cool guy and that that always adds to it. But uh yeah, it was pretty sick. Brody, do you do you think it was the best underdog story we've seen? I mean, I'm no historian when it comes to disc golf, so I would be the worst person to ask this. I mean, an I don't, a name that kind of pops out to me is like James Conrad winning worlds, right? Where he takes down Paul Macbeth, who is like, looks to be in control and on his way to adding just another world world title. And James just kind of comes out of nowhere and, and takes it down. Um, I don't know if that kind of has like a different vibe than this one. Uh, but just looking at his statistics over the, the, the final round alone, he was 89% circle one X 80% circle two putting. Um, I did see kind of the highlight package of him playing. He was just going for every shot. And you know, when you're in, when you're in that kind of, that, that kind of feeling that you can't do anything wrong and on a course that is as attackable as Emporia country club, um, you can just see the confidence that he had. The fact that, you know, he went for Eagle on that par five where a lot of players just played that hole for chip, 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 birdie. Uh, you, you can just see that he was having the confidence um, to just go for it. And that was exciting to see. I, I think, again, you know, people are going to make a big fuss over the, the rating system. I, you know me, I hate ratings. Um, I think the world world ranking was kind of interesting him being outside the top hundred and winning, but I think it's just showing again that, you know, like Evan Smith was up there. We've seen his name pop up once or twice. There's guys that are just popping up and just kind of fading off and not actually getting the, the wins. He was the first one I would say this season that kind of popped off. And, and took it down. Like we saw size Schultz almost, almost do it at champions cup. There are players that I would say aren't known superstars yet. in disc golf that are just popping off and they're showing that we're getting to the stage where it's not just this guy or this guy can win. It's go down the leaderboard. There's a lot of people that have a lot of chances and disc golf. It's, it's so interesting because it is, it's such an easy sport in the grand scheme of things that just like, if you're this, if you just change this much, uh, 
you feel like you could win. And, you know, just to give like a, my own personal antidote of the weekend going into the week, I was, I felt very confident that I could win this tournament and leaving the tournament. You look at where I am on the leaderboard and you're like, Holy cow, you weren't even close. But in my mind, I'm like, I was just like a few things. I, I need like, to get a few things here. Bogies, man. Well, I mean, that's two, <laughs> that, that was, yeah, that was two, two poor shots, right? Yeah. Two poor shots g- gave me a quad. Um, I made a triple twice. Um, but in my mind, there was so many, so many good shots. I would say like 95% of my throws were very, very good. So leaving that tournament, I'm just thinking in my head, like, man, if I can just get that 5% cleaned up, and I'm sure there's tons of people that were even closer to win this tournament that are thinking in their heads, man, if I just made this putt here, if I would have not messed this upshot. And I think that just shows that um, this is this is kind of where we're getting at. There are more and more players that can win these tournaments. Very true. And uh, it's, it's very exciting. It's very true. And we and uh, I think we've already thought that way about like, oh, anybody in the top three. 40 could win but seeing somebody outside the top 100 just opens that to a new depth where there's like there's this whole new list of players that i'm like that means because this happened that guy could win and i think i knew that but i just hadn't had it confirmed like this steven what do you think Mm -hmm. so i think that if we it's it's difficult to call this the best underdog story ever because you have to take into account the kind of gravitas of the tournament you know what it means it's not a major it's an elite series um and if it was a silver then if it was hunter we wouldn't be talking about it at all ever so if we look at the performance on a one tournament basis take away the gravitas then i would say so the pro tour itself maybe not the history of disc golf you know, but the pro tour, this is one of the best underdog stories we have ever seen. Parker's a killer, but he's never even won an A tier before this. Like what? (laughs) You played 104 events ever. You've only won four. And then you come out and you take down an elite series against the best player in the world going shot for shot, his energy on the course, his attitude towards the game, that celebration after he hit the Eagle. Like I want to see that in disc golf and this story and the way that he came about winning it, it, it makes you feel good. And, and that's what gets people invested emotionally in the game and in these players. Yeah. uh, Very good. I I think um, it's very much, PGA tour vibes when we're talking about field depth at this point where you could watch any guy on any given day who's playing well and be like, this is the best golfer I've ever seen in my life. Like that's, <laughs> that's the, where we're at now is like, if you were watching Parker Welk yesterday, you were like, this guy's unbeatable. He does it. He has every shot. He doesn't miss. And that's where we're at now. If somebody's having their weekend, our field is deep enough that you're not going to be like, Oh, well, they're just, they're not that good. Like you have to be that good and you have to play that good to win. And- Oh, I was just going to add on this also was, um, this, this style of course was a very, very much, um, no decision-making kind of style of course when the wind, you know, this is coming from someone that last year played this course. And, uh, I think I almost shot about the same this year as last year. And last year we were playing in 40 mile per hour winds this year. We were playing in no wind. And the decision making is 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 just gone when there's no wind out there. Yeah, it's it's literally who can just execute the shots better, and yeah. ultimately that's probably what disc golf is. I'm starting to come to a realization that's what disc golf is when we don't have wind. It's very hard to find a course that has the decision making when you're not in the woods, obviously. Yeah, and Parker, like you said. Yesterday was a clear indicator that his game was firing on all cylinders. And so he never had that. That's the one thing that like, it would have been interesting to see the only game times decision. I would say was like going for the Eagle on 14. That was like the only decision he really had to make coming down the stretch. Other than that, it's literally just execute the shot, execute the shot, execute the shot. And he was, yeah, he, was he just wasn't messing I've always, up. I've always said that ECC is like a, disguised you know pedal a foot on the gas course because it looks like there'd be a lot of decision making because of the presence of ob but when there's no wind 
the landing zones are pretty much the same. Like you throw the shot, then you throw the shot. That's and everybody kind of plays it a similar way. Um, definitely, definitely kind of how that course ends up. Yeah. I mean, no doubt there was a lot of confidence for Parker. I mean, throwing that Annie stall backhand on 16 in the final round is just dirty. Just nuts. <laughs> I want to know if he did that all three rounds. I think, I think so. I think they said he had gone with it round two, at least, um, just a nuts line, what? but I mean, yeah, I don't know what the, <laughs> he just must be comfortable. Those prodigy players love those putter flex shots. They love it. Yep. So I'm thinking that's like Gannon bird likes that shot too. And it was just working. Um, so we're going to continue on this. And the next, the next question here is, was Parker Welk's performance a flash in the pan? Or is there a reason to expect more from him going forward? Cause you know, man, his game looked so, so good going into that last, into that last round that you almost have to ask the question, Brody, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it would be, you know, obviously it doesn't like, if you look at kind of his, his, season so far it doesn't bode for like you know continued excellence of this oh he's just going to be the favorite to win the next tournament uh he didn't mention in the his post conference or his post interview after winning that like udisc had given him like a less than one percent chance of winning and he felt disrespectful i i don't think that is probably what you should give someone that's two shots off the lead however you know it probably is. There is probably some math that goes involved of why it was so low. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see. I think winning does have an impact. Like it could change and uh, definitely, you know, boost his confidence and move forward. These next couple tournaments, Des Moines is a very similar kind of style course, as well as, um, you know, uh, preserve. So it'd be very, you know, curious to kind of see how he does on these next two events. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's winning is tough. It's, it's very, very difficult right now to win consistently. So I don't think he should kind of put that pressure on himself to like get back into the winner's circle, but to see him continue to kind of have success and, and maybe get a top 20 in these next couple of events or a top 10, I think that would go well for him in the future. Yeah, the win is definitely that unknown variable. What will that do for a player? Steven, what do you think? So uh, I think if we have to answer the question now, it's flash in the pan because his body of work, you know, I was talking about it earlier. He, he's never won an A tier. So like you, you have to look at that and then think, well, he put it together for one weekend. That's great. Let's see him do it again. And so uh, he has all the tools. He has the big, big forehand. He has a serviceable, if not, you know, great backhand. And he's a killer on the putting green when he needs to be, especially in, in circle two. In the clutch, he went four for five in circle two in the final round. I mean, that was huge. So he has the tools needed in order to, you know, be great on the pro tour. But as of right now, there's 50 other guys at least that have the tools to be great on the pro tour. And so as we move more and more and more to this um, golf-esque field, you know, you're going to see guys pop off and then not even sniff the top 10 for the next five tournaments. And so it's difficult at this point to say anything, but if we can see him string together a few top 20s in a row, then I'll feel more comfortable saying, okay, Parker's here. He's ready to play. And, and he's going to, he's going to be more than just that one, one win pony, you know, coming into next season. Yeah. Fair enough. Let's see the body of work. Absolutely. Matthew, what do you think? Is it a, is it a fluke? Let's, let's talk about the difference here. There are a lot of guys who think they can be winning, but what if you knew it for a fact? Like what if you knew with a shadow of a doubt that you can go out and beat, everyone else there like he just did you know now i will agree body work is not great and i'm not expecting him to pop off with the top five next week or something like that but anytime someone gets a win i will never count them out from then on out because they know they can win that's the most important part there um i mean like and i think this is going to be consistent from across the entire thing we were just talking about with steven not only are you going to have to worry about the top 20 players when you go to a tournament, you're going to have to worry about the guy having the weekend of his life that is so low rated you don't even know he exists now. And one of those 
just won, and now he knows he can win. So, flash in the pan for him, it might be. I, I would, like I said, let's see how he keeps moving. But we now know, this is that momentum thing I'm talking about, I guarantee we're going to see more and more players doing that. They just watched Parker do it. They're looking around. They're like, uh, I've played against him a couple times. He's pretty good. Maybe I can have the weekend of my life. And yeah. it's just going to repeat and go like crazy for all those. Like, there's just no way to stop it now. I think it's such a cool piece of the puzzle to add in now. But I would be curious. I'm really, I was, I'm hopeful that Parker stays around for a little longer and does some cool stuff with that. It is, it is so true. That must be like a huge confidence boost for the lower end of the field to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm higher rated than him or I've beat him so many times. Like it, you know, it can be done and you're right. I mean, the benefit and in your mind and in your confidence of winning an event, even just so that the next time, if you do get in contention, knowing, Hey, I've been here before I've done this. It's not nearly as much pressure. Cause like, think about the difference. If you're Parker Welk, the next time, the difference between, oh my goodness, I, this might be my only chance to win ever. This could be a lifetime achievement. Or, hey, I've done this before. This would just be another win. It's a very different uh, scenario in the amount of pressure you're going to be applying to yourself. Um, and going to be interesting to see how that goes forward. Uh, we, I want to add one point, too. That's okay. just an inter interesting contrast between... Now, obviously, Adam played Zootown Open prior to this tournament. But I played with Adam... Uh, yesterday the final or the final round with you and you know we were talking a little bit about how you know we've always struggled at country club and in the past you know ddo was half the rounds are at country club the other half are at jones and you know we played better at jones and we've come to country club and not play that well interesting contrast because you know adam goes out wins portland comes struggles at ddo Parker goes out to Portland, misses the cut, comes to DDO and wins. So again, I think there are some players that, you know, will their talents or skills or whatever might show a little bit more on other courses. And then, you know, you have the upper echelon players and they are upper echelon because their game just goes from tournament to tournament. And that's like a Calvin Heimberg, right? It doesn't matter what the style of course is. He is, if he's playing well, he's going to be in contention. And it'll just be interesting to see kind of now that Parker has this win, how his game translates moving forward into some of these other events. I mean, European Open is a, is a tournament that's kind of, you know, USCDC, another one kind of the same style. And if the wind is down, again, when the wind is down, it's like the guys that are just executing their game and playing the best those are the guys that are that are kind of towards the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. We got a few more topics um, in the rapid fire round about Parker that we'll get to. Um, first, got to do our elimination. Stephen and Brody with ten and eight points respectively. We'll be moving on. Matthew just one point off the pace. Very close. It was very close this week, but we'll be sitting out our our final rapid fire round. See if Brody can can scrape back a few points. This time we actually have a leader, so I don't have to. Uh, don't have to make anybody pick a number here. So, Steven, you you have uh, the choice as we head into our rapid fire round. I want to go first. He wants the box. Wants to go first. All right. So, first subject here. Um, it's going to be a. Is it actually a big deal? Um, <laughs> is it actually a big deal? Parker Welk jumping seventy three spots to world number thirty nine after just one great performance. Uh. It's a big deal because it shows the deficiency of that particular ranking system. Um, no player after one performance should jump up 73 spots in the world ranking, in my opinion. He has not proven that he's a top 40 player on tour at this point in time. He has proved that he can put up a performance like that, um, but there needs to be more consistency before somebody moves up that far. I mean, as Brody can attest, you know, he's been pushing and pushing and pushing to increase his world ranking and it's kind of working over time and you know he's moved up but you know you can't just play one event beat all these guys and then go oh you know what this guy's a top 40 player now it doesn't work like that you just can't do that i think that the algorithm for that particular world ranking needs to be updated a little bit before we start taking it seriously and making it a big deal yeah brady what do you think about that system 
See, I took this question as like, yeah, that is a big deal. Um, you know, I think Terry. Yeah, I think Terry mentioned at the end that this this win s- secured his tour card. Um, I, I would love to see winning also on tour, like securing a few other things. I think like the points that he's going to acquire could definitely help him get into the playoffs and potentially the tour championship as well. Um, I think now he's for sure guaranteed in the Champions Cup as well with the win. Uh, I would love to see a couple other things obviously come with that. You know, I think winning on tour, maybe you should get like two years because ideally if you win on tour or not ideally, but if you win on tour, you're probably going to attain the points needed unless you like literally play no events to get your tour card for next season already. So I think it would be nice if you went on tour, they were like, Hey, the next two seasons you're locked in. So that way, if you do have a poor next season, you already, you're already good to go the year after that. Um, I'm actually okay with him moving up that many spots. I, you know, I think guys that are further down, down the, the, the list, they're going to move up obviously a lot more spots that they actually do win. This also was a really good field. The, you know, the, the competition there was really strong. There weren't that many players, you know, besides maybe the Kyle Klein Eagle, those type of guys uh, Paul, those guys weren't in the field, but other than that, pretty much everyone was there and he beat everyone. So I'm okay with him obviously moving up to that spot. I don't, the world rankings are kind of the weird system in some situations, but you know, if you win on tour, I'm completely fine. Even if your other events are trash, I'll be the first to say I much rather would have a season where I'm trash at every event. And I have one win on tour than being like, okay, at a bunch. So, um, I think, I think it matters winning matters a lot he's his name is now etched in history of the disc golf pro tour no one will ever forget his name as a as a past winner and uh he has that moving forward fair fair enough i mean there's definitely something to be said for the fact that like you know anybody in those lower slots also has the opportunity to jump if they do win but and it does it's it's always like how do you look at the world rankings right because like if you try to look at them as like a real interpretation of who's the best it is difficult to be like man, is he really better than all those guys that finished more consistently than him just because he got one win? But it, it'll be an ongoing discussion, as we all know. That's just kind of how things are. So um, into the next topic, uh, Stephen was still a one-point lead. Uh, this is uh, actually, I believe, Stephen, you're the one that actually gave the idea for this topic. Nope. nope. It wasn't it was somebody it was Ty- else. It, it might have been Tyler then. Tyler. Um, yeah. Okay, well, you won't, have as take much credit. you won't have as much of an advantage then. Uh, but we kind of saw two different... <laughs> Two different uh, entertainment packages in disc golf this week. We saw FPO, where we have a lot of known players that were all in a really good battle in FPO, which we don't always see that in FPO. A lot of times we just see Kristen pulling away, realistically. But we saw a lot of really good players that were battling, um, throwing clutch shots down the stretch, making an interesting product there. So we kind of saw, and that's what we see in MPO a lot. So we saw that kind of storyline versus MPO this week. We got to see um, this somewhat unknown player like having this underdog story beating out the number one player in the world for the win so my question is which do you think is more entertaining for the viewers that that battle between known favorites or the unknown challenger taking on the superstar brody what do you think i think it's like a case-by-case basis because i'm you know i look at how how i view because it's tough because i'm obviously playing in disc golf so i kind of like look at how i view other sports and when you when you look at let's say, you know, the U S open just happened and, you know, you had Wyndham Clark winning it at the end. I think a lot of us probably would have liked to see maybe Rory and Scotty be a little bit and and Ricky kind of coming down to the wire and we kind of got Wyndham Clark versus Rory. And that's all we got. Um, I don't know how many people enjoyed that. I, I definitely would have enjoyed more seeing Ricky versus Rory down the stretch um, then you look at like March Madness. That's one where sometimes the underdog story, like, you know, David's, I, I used to remember like Davidson with Steph Curry, like that, I was rooting the crap out of Davidson. Like I wanted to see how far they could go. Um, and maybe it's one of those where it's just like some players are going to catch your eye and you're going to be drawn to them. And I think the way that disc golf currently is packaged, it's very hard for like a Parker Welk, for example, to get like a crazy amount. Cause I mean, if, if, if the PGA tour struggles to do it, like us open 
really struggled at making me want to root for Wyndham Clark. And so if they can't do it, you know, I'm not, I'm not really giving that much guff, I guess on the disc golf pro tour to be able to do it. But like March madness, they know how to do it, right? Like when you have, um, what was it? Florida golf coast. When they, when they were having their run, like people dunk city, right? Like, or, uh, was it, was it, yeah, it was dunk city. Like, People were going nuts on that and they're able to build that kind of underdog story through the tournament. It's, it's, it's harder to do in like the individual sport kind of tournament style one day after the next. Um, so me personally, I love seeing like the superstars, the number world, number one versus world number two coming down the stretch. That's me. But I could, I could see some people liking the underdog story more. Okay. Steven, what do you think? Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on the other side of the fence, uh, on this one, but before I jump into that, I really quickly just want to say the lack of spectators made this feel like a silver event from a viewer standpoint. So I think we all lost on that one. (laughs) Yeah, it was not good. Um, now, uh, I do see the allure from both sides, one versus two, you know, two juggernauts, you know, duking it out, I think is great. But for me, and what I talked about earlier, and I think that part of this is because, you know, me personally, I I've seen, you know, Parker kind of move up in the ranks of just like the MPO field from his local scene. So a little more connection than most, but from an underdog story, the emotion that you get from a, from a guy that comes in or a team that comes in and beats the number one after having virtually no opportunity or no shot when it comes to percentages, that makes you feel something. And, you know, from Brody's standpoint, the, March Madness, they have time to build that. It's harder to build it over the course of the tournament. But I think from Parker, you received that through some of his post-round interviews and you kind of had a look behind the scenes. And so that makes you more invested. So from a viewing standpoint, I like the David versus Goliath. I like the underdog story. Um, And I will always be more uh, driven towards that as a viewer than I would, you know, number one versus number two. Can I add sure. something to that real sure. quick? Sure. Um, so the two times that I saw like the highlights that he made, he made that really big putt on hole nine, uh, I believe to save par and then did like that parkour jump through the tree. <laughs> yeah. And then his Eagle putt on hole 14. Both of those are like not good spectator holes. The spectators are really far away. Hole 14, it's actually really even hard to see, sure. depending on where you are, to even see the basket. And yes, the 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 crowd size out there was was uh, dismal. It was or abysmal. I think yeah, both, both words can be used. Both. Um, <laughs> yeah, both. wasn't good. So it's unfortunate that like those two big shots, like no one really uh, got to. You, you we didn't get that crowd like roar and. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, that that's tough. And then, uh, see, crap. I had a, I had a question for, Oh, you were talking about the interviews. Do we know? I, again, I didn't watch the live that much yet. So sure. he wasn't filmed at all. Round one. No, it was round two. No, and round No interview round one. Was there an interview pre or post round two? I believe there was post round two and not have to go back and check, but I'm, I'm probably, so they interviewed Parker yeah being two shots back they didn't interview because well, he was on card i know but after the round they didn't interview the leader they interviewed Parker. Well, of course they it? did no no they did interview the they leader did multiple multiple yeah, they, cause, well because they have okay. tournament central now so they do multiple interviews it's not just gotcha. the leader okay. after the round yeah yeah but but i think to your point of saying like march madness you know you you if win time. uh granted like first round second round are kind of right back to back but if you win first round and second round then you have a little bit more time to kind of build up the story going into um sweet 16 well, and it's also the i think with thing, Mark- it's like you, you for first day is just over yeah like, right no one you know no so time. you literally have you literally have the end of day two to day three and that's it to I like think- build a story you have like I- 12 hours. I think it's because the pro tour has a little bit more like closeness with the players than the PGA tour does. And I think the pro tour does a good job of getting to know their players on a more personal level. Um, especially when, you know, 
they are a little bit more of a tight knit community as opposed to the PGA tour and how big and, and grand there, it is. There's definitely a better chance of a pro tour commentator, like personally knowing some of the players yeah. stories, I guess. I, I think Brody, you said it with it's with the underdog story. It's a lot of times if they catch your eye, that's where it becomes very much person to person. Anytime you have yeah. an underdog, like, like Parker, for example, there'll be some people that are like, Oh my gosh, I just like, even when I watch golf, they'll, whenever there is an underdog, threatening to upset a favorite and especially in golf when like you cheer for a lot of the favorites a lot of times like oh i like rory or i like i like or i like uh, isaac robinson and i like eagle mcmahon or whatever if that for that underdog to be rooted for they have to catch your eye and you have to start to kind of buy into like oh that's a good guy i'd like to see him win like you know yeah. there's there's that kind of feeling there and and certainly when that does happen you can that effect can be even stronger than wanting to favor to win but it, it totally can be 50 50 it's just it's an interesting one um going to our last topic here steven's still up by one point diving back into those controversial at times you disc uh methodologies um <laughs> so parker welk had less than one percent chance of winning according to you disc only two shots off the lead going into the final day while he was um and i just said he was two shots off the lead um is that a clear indicator that those percentages are a bit dramatic or is it the perfect testament to the odds he ever came to win i think those those percentages get talked about quite a bit uh steven what do you think so i'm going to ask you a question you run that back a hundred times. How many times does Parker Welk win that in that scenario down two strokes to Calvin Heimberg? One. Mm. One. With all the other players in the field, Parker Welk wins one time, in my opinion. And that, that's, that's where I think argument. you end that's up in argument. that 1%. And so, and so in terms of that, I think it's spot on. Now, realistically, sure, you may 5%. Sure, maybe you can you can go that route. But I think you look at everything Parker had to do. He had to continue his momentum. He had to hit 80% of his circle two putts. He had to hit the circle one putts in the big moment, not crumble mentally and help hope that Calvin didn't match him shot for shot. He had to do all of those things had to come into play for him to win that tournament. And so 1%, while it seems super small, I, I think it's the right call. Fair argument. I, I do a lot of times respect how blunt the percentages are because it's like you'll see Kristen still have a 50% chance of winning down by four. And it's like, well, she probably <laughs> will. <laughs> Brody, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, the 1%, it's 100 to 1, right? I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out that out, out right. What? Well, 90, one out of 100. One out of 100 no, no. chance. No, I know, but I'm saying like if we're doing betting odds, the betting odds would be a hundred to one. So that would yes. be like plus ten thousand. Am I doing that right? Don't ask me. I'm not. I, I'm I not think anymore. so. If you bet, if you bet a hundred dollars, you win ten thousand. On a hundred to one odds, yeah, it would multiply yeah. ten dollars would yeah ten times a hundred. No, hundred. Hundred. You bet hundred thousand. Yeah. A hundred times a hundred is ten thousand. I'm almost yeah, positive. You're, <laughs> yeah. You're I, showing I think, your math correctly. <laughs> yeah. So, so doing that, I'm, I'm just saying, I think sometimes, you know, with the UDIS thing, it's just a stat we all can look at, but yeah. like the money, like where people are going to put their money, that's really what it ultimately comes down to. Yeah. And if, if Parker Welk had plus, uh, plus 1000 or 10,000 odds, sorry, plus 10,000 going into the final round. You don't think people are hammering that? Oh, uh, like just uh, yeah. sprinkling 25 bucks. <laughs> well, sure. 50 bucks. Yeah. But I didn't and have plus 10,000. He didn't have those odds. That's what I'm saying. I don't think he opens up uh, if there's actually money involved, if there's actually a casino or, you know, a bookie doing the numbers, I don't think he opens up plus 10,000. No. Right. No. So that's where I, I think when, when there's money involved, I think the odds are a little bit more. Um, now, Kristen Tatar, like her odds, she was 71% chance to win before the tournament started. You know, I, I think at this point, she might be negative money going into tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> right like yeah that's true like you, you bet 100 bucks to win 95 yeah. right um yeah. even worse than that <laughs> yeah that that to me might not be the craziest thing but yeah plus 10,000 i think i'm i'm throwing i'm throwing some money on parker because it's like why not like there's a good chance like in my mind there's a good chance that uh he he might just pull it off and then you make a crap ton of money so that's where to me I, I think sometimes they they look they take into account too much of like what have you done in the past and not like what could you do. 
Right. Um, and, and they're not, obviously they're not on the safe side of things of where they're like, Hey, we can't put out plus 10,000 people are going, <laughs> yeah. people are going to, you know, someone's going to come in and bet a thousand dollars on this. And all of a sudden now we owe a hundred grand to someone. So, right. um, yeah, I don't, it'll be interesting to see what he opens up next tournament. And th- did you guys look at to see how it changed throughout the round? Cause that to me would be really interesting. Uh, That's I was something that we it. could do. They, I mean, they were favoring Calvin because I mean, till the end, Calvin had the lead for a long time there. You know, obviously mm-hmm. there was the there was the switch up down the stretch on you know fourteen and and yeah. so on. Um, but they, yeah, they were favoring Calvin. I mean, pretty much all the way home. I yeah, I think that even after like heavily the, though, like was he like still well, single so, digits to win? No, after after hole fourteen when. Uh, Parker took the lead. I think it switched, but it still had Calvin at like over 35% chance to win even after that point. Yeah, he still was pretty oh, it was, right here. It was big. Yeah. So Calvin. Oh my gosh. Gosh. You did sometimes, man. Can you look Can at I a see hole by what, hole? Yeah, but I can't tell what hole this is. <laughs> well, hole, okay. Well, at. When Parker was 19 under, Calvin was 21 under, Alden was 21 under, and Mattia, Mattia was, was 19 under. Yeah, that was the beginning yeah. of the round. Yeah. No. Wait. Oh, that yeah. was okay. Oh, that's so weird. Why do they do that? Is that like a time thing? Okay. So the beginning <laughs> of the round, they had they had Mattio and Alden basically locked in about 18 percent, and then Calvin was at 46. It wasn't until literally, I'm guessing that was hole 14 when Parker changed. Yep. So like at that point, Parker went super high. He went from a 7% chance to win to a, like a 40 something, 48% yeah. chance. Which so is, like that switch. Which is funny. Cause if, I mean, if anybody should have a 0% chance to win, it should probably be Matty O. I mean, he just, he yeah. can't win. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's like as close to fact as we get. Um, yeah, and yeah, any I have, the percentages are interesting. In any case, Steven, you are a winner today, 16 to 15. Is that your first win, Steven? Two. Second win. Okay, I was gonna I say had the, I had the very uh controversial win over Robbie C. So not controversial at all. I'll, hey, I'll that's my on, guy. I'll die on that's that. That's my hill. guy. Um <laughs> what what do you have to say about your second career victory? Um, well, some will say it's also controversial because there's only three of us today, but I take it a wins, a wins, a win, a win. And, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, again, happy to be here and, uh, ready to add some more to that, uh, trophy case. All right. Well, we are back in studio now. Um, I am going to be gone next week, so who knows what, uh, what debate night will look at. Like, though. Uh, so hopefully you enjoyed this for sure guaranteed present time episode and we'll, we'll see you next time.